0: Welcome to the Five Good Ideas podcast. This is where we rebroadcast some of the best sessions of Maitri's popular Lunch and Learn program. I'm your host, Gayatri Kumar, and I'm a communication specialist at Maitri. We're a Toronto-based organization committed to exploring solutions to poverty in Canada using a human rights approach. For each session of 5 Good Ideas, we invite an expert from the non-profit or corporate sector to share 5 practical ideas on a key management issue facing non-profit organizations today. How can we influence and shape the decisions being made in the halls of power? What power do we have to transform our cities? In this session, originally recorded on February 26, 2020, we look at how to build democratic power for change. Our speaker for this session is Michael Hay, who's the founding executive director of Progress Toronto. As an organizer, her focus is on bridging the gap between people and the political power needed for progressive change. Here is Michael with her five good ideas.
1: So I'm here today to talk with you about how to build power to win change. And I'd like to start with a few questions. How many people here think that the status quo is working? Raise your hand. How many people here think that the status quo is working? For them, but for you? No. <laughs> Does anybody feel too uncomfortable to raise their hand, but it's really working for you? No? <laughs> okay. Um, so if the status quo isn't working, how many people here trust? the majority of people who are currently elected will just do the right thing to fix inequality. Anyone? Maybe a couple people who are elected we could trust, but not the majority, right? How many people here feel that the, the most, that most of the people who are elected understand the day-to-day lives of the people that they represent? One, the majority? Some. They're clueless, clueless, somebody said in the audience. Um, And I might repeat back things that you say so that people who are watching online also get to benefit from your answers. So it's kind of sad that we we don't have too much faith in the people who are elected right now uh, to make change. So that really means that it's up to us. And that's a big part of what I want to talk to you about. So for those in the room, if we think about Toronto for a second, as most Torontonians like to do, we like to think about Toronto. What are some of the biggest what's like some of the biggest problems that we're facing, the biggest crises that we're facing as a city? Just yell it out. Housing. It's <laughs> almost everybody yelled out housing. Transit. Transit. So there must be like an order to it that we all know. Anything else? Income inequality and affordability were yelled in unison. Says so the third one right? So housing, transit, affordability, income inequality, under housing there would be homelessness and access to housing, poverty, people being pushed out of the city, climate Climate change, and what the city's doing to deal with climate change in the province. Segregation, Segregation, yep, that's a big part of of the impact of inequality in the city. So we know that in Toronto and our communities they're becoming increasingly unaffordable And income inequality is widening faster than ever before in the city. People, communities, and arguably an entire generation are being squeezed out of Toronto, pushed out of the city, right? It's harder and harder to afford to live here. The cost of childcare, it's hard to raise a family here. It's hard to find a place to live. And yet most of the people elected are out of touch with the day-to-day realities that people are facing in the city. And so even though sometimes they talk about the right thing, So it might sound like they're talking about the right thing. They seem to lack, at least in my opinion, a sense of urgency around dealing with these issues and a real clarity or vision about what we need to do as a city to actually fix it. And it is possible to fix. So we know that things need to change, but how do we make it happen? What power do we have to demand and win change to transform our cities? Where does our power come from? Who in this room has access to millionaires? Raise your hand. Access to millionaires. No one? Usually somebody raises their hand. But I think if you know you're surrounded by people from the nonprofit sector, you don't want to let them know that you have access to millionaires. Um, But that's clearly not where our power comes from, access to millionaires. Who here has access to expensive PR agencies and TV ad campaigns? Raise your hand. No? No one? So that's not where our power comes from, again. Do any of you have fathers that sit on editorial boards of major newspapers? No? This is a reality for other people, right? This is where their power comes from. That's not where our power comes from. So where does our power come from? What power do we have? Just yell it out. People. I heard somebody say people. Power and, number. power and number. It's also the answers that for most of the questions I ask are all on your handout. <laughs> so if you want, you can have a look and you can cheat. Um, the power that we have is people. That's the first idea that I have for you today. And it's the idea that all of the next ideas that I'm going to present stem from a deep belief that the power that we have is people or democratic power. How many people in this room remember Doug Ford's announcement last spring that he was going to cut public health divisions across Ontario? Most people in this room. So last spring, Doug Ford announced he was changing the cost sharing between the province and municipalities across Ontario. In Toronto specifically, because Toronto was being hardest hit with this cut, it meant $1 billion being cut over 10 years. According to Toronto's Board of Health, it meant that 602 schools were at risk of losing their breakfast and lunch programs for kids that were going to school hungry, trying to learn on empty stomachs. It meant that over 1,000 daycares and over 85 long-term care homes were potentially going to lose their inspections, their health and safety inspections. It meant that 24 low-income dental clinics might be closing in the city. And it meant that 800 schools might be losing their immunization programs that were run by public health. A terrible time to be losing immunization programs in the city. So as mentioned in my introduction, I helped found an organization in April 2018, so less than two years ago, called Progress Toronto. How many people here have heard of Progress Toronto? That's good, most people in this room. Also you have flyers on your table right now that would help you. Okay, at Progress Toronto we have four streams to our work building power which is focused on training and leadership development pushing power which is our advocacy campaigns checking power which is all about holding people accountable elected people accountable for the decisions that they're making and what makes us unique as an organization is that when all of those three streams fail we also focus on taking power so we will run campaigns in elections to oppose or support candidates because we need to change who's making decisions at At city hall specifically and at the school board a few people applauded thank you (laughs) and so when the public health cuts were announced we very quickly launched a campaign alongside allies to stop the cuts our campaign strategy was based on the belief that the power we have is people and our belief our deep belief in democratic power so this idea that power comes from people starts to shape the tactics that you use in campaigns So we wanted as many people as possible who lived in conservative held ridings across Toronto, there's 11 of the 25 ridings in Toronto are held by conservatives. We wanted people who lived in those ridings to contact their MPPs and tell them to stop the cuts to public health. We believe that if local MPPs felt this pressure coming from their constituents, coupled with Doug Ford's declining popularity, we could cause dissent within Doug Ford's caucus of his elected MPPs. And months later, this is exactly what we saw happen. It wasn't just because of Progress Toronto's campaign, it was because of all the campaigns that were being run across the province to stop Ford's cuts. But as MPPs were getting scared that they were losing the support of their constituents and that they might not be able to be re-elected, and so they dissented internally. Do people remember this in like June last year? So we heard stories of caucus members leaving meetings crying. And there was a huge change in leadership within Doug Ford's group, senior leadership. And then Ford went quiet over the summer and rebranded, right? He came back. Do people in this room think he successfully rebranded? No, (laughs) nobody does. Um, So we hosted door-to-door canvases in conservative held ridings, in polls in those ridings where people voted conservative. We, We knocked on doors and asked people to call their MPP, to email their MPP, we made it easy for them to do this and to sign our petitions. We phoned landlines in all 11 Conservative ridings in Toronto. Phoning landlines means that we tend to be phoning homeowners in the city or older people who still have landlines in their homes, and those people tend to vote and are seen as having more power. So we were targeting a group of people who MPPs might listen to even more. And we did that for three weeks. In a rolling way, we phoned through these writings, and we helped patch 5,000 people through to conservative MPP's offices. It didn't happen as like one blast of, of phone calls that their MPP office was getting in one day. It was every single day. It was relentless for three weeks. We also used an online email petition. Has anybody here signed one of our petitions? A few people? And so you can edit the text of what you're sending to the MPP or whoever you're targeting with the email, and based on your postal code that you put in, it will send it directly to your elected representative, which means that elected reps have the opportunity to hear directly from their constituents, which is where we believe the power comes from to change what they're doing. Then almost one month after the cuts were announced, Doug Ford took them back. We had won. Do people remember when he came out and announced... He was rolling back the cuts yeah and it was only one year into his term so it was a huge success and frankly it was something we didn't know was possible but we had won he announced he was significantly reducing the cuts he was changing the cost sharing ratio and for 2020 this this budget year he was giving cities one-time funding So now we're still fighting to stop the remaining cuts to public health, they'll be in place for 2021. The biggest impact that they actually have is on infectious disease control programs in Toronto. Um, And it represents about $14 million a year that he's cutting, which is a lot less than the $1 billion over, over 10 years that we were facing before. But we continue to use the same tactic, the same belief in people power, democratic people power to fight these cuts. So if our power is from people, what does it mean to have more power? What does more power mean? Success, Success, yeah. Yep. You get taken seriously? But what is more power? Tangibly, it's not more money. It's more people, it's more people. So it means that our power increases as our numbers increase. With more people involved in our work, we can knock on more doors, We can make more phone calls. We can move more people to action. But if we're working with thousands of people or even hundreds of people to help us win campaigns, we need to have distributed leadership to be able to manage people effectively. That's the second idea I've submitted to you today. Our power increases as our numbers increase, but for that to happen, we need to turn to distributed leadership. Who here has helped to run a campaign, issue-based or electoral of any kind that involved hundreds of volunteers? A few people? Yep. Yeah. What were some of the challenges that you faced on those campaigns? Just yell it out. Motivation over time, Motivation over time keeping people engaged. Yep. Yeah. Anything else? No. I have a list here of things that I usually hear. Um, Often, people on larger campaigns with hundreds of volunteers have have trouble keeping them involved, for sure. They also have too many people who demand their time at once, and it's very hard to keep up. Have people experienced that with volunteers? It's a little bit hard to keep up and get them out the door and get them moving fast enough. You can be overwhelmed by the amount of activities you're supposed to do, the amount of work that you have to do. You end up working really late sometimes on these campaigns because you care so deeply, um, and you probably put in more hours than you should. And there's just so many people to manage and talk to and to keep up with. Who here has volunteered on a campaign, maybe an electoral campaign? How how did you feel? What were some of the challenges you might have faced there? Not knowing when you'd be the most helpful. helpful? That's that's very helpful for me. That feeds directly into what I'm going to (laughs) say. Anything else? So. Common challenges volunteers face is that you might walk into, let's say it's a campaign office, and you wait for 20 minutes before somebody even talks to you, right? You wait for 20 minutes before someone sends you out. So you've committed three hours of your time, but you've already lost 20 minutes of your time just waiting. Sometimes it feels like the campaign or the organization keeps calling you to do the same thing. You're not really sure why. It doesn't really feel like you're valued, right? and you feel like you're just being deployed, and and you kind of know that when it's over, you're probably not going to get called again for a little while. Like, you're not necessarily feeling like you're a part of something. Have people felt like that? There's some nods. And you probably think you can do more in different tasks, but you're not being asked. Like, you're not being used to your full potential. Who here is a manager of a team, like in their workplace? Lots of hands are going up. How How many people do you manage? you manage directly 25 people? That's huge. How many people do other people manage? Two, That's more, that sounds much more reasonable. Yeah, nicer <laughs> to manage that back there. Two as well, anyone else? 20, directly manage 20 people. Well, there's lots of studies that have been done about management ratios, and I think the optimal is something like eight, um, in terms of being able to effectively manage people. So do you think that you could do a good job as a manager if I told you you were responsible for managing over 100 people? No, no. And it's the same thing when you're managing campaigns or when you're managing people like volunteers on campaigns. One to 100, one to 150, one to 50, those are bad management ratios. To efficiently and effectively manage more people, we need to turn to distributed leadership models. In fact, the problem you may have, like some of you might actually feel like the problem that you face is that you don't have enough volunteers for what you want to accomplish. How many people here feel that? It's a few people. But with distributed leadership models and people feeling more valued, you will be able to recruit more people and you will be able to increase, continue to increase your power. So in 2014, I was the field director on Olivia Chow's mayoral campaign. Anyone who knows Olivia knows that she's a people magnet. How many people in here know of Olivia Chow? Lots of people. When she launched her campaign in March 2014, over 4,000 people signed up to volunteer within a week. And ultimately, by the end of the campaign, over 9,000 people had signed up to volunteer. But in the very beginning, I was alone. The field team consisted of one, me for the first month before we were able to fundraise and bring more people in. Our goal as a field team was to identify a strong, was to build a strong grassroots field campaign that would identify and persuade people to vote for Olivia Chow in the the mayoral race in 2014. We wanted to knock on hundreds of thousands of doors and have face-to-face conversations with people across the city and through the knocking on doors deliver Millions of pieces of literature as well about Olivia. At the launch of the campaign, I knew I had to get back to people who just signed up as fast as I could, but I, because they were hot leads, right? As soon as you engage them, they're more likely to be engaged and volunteer. But the management ratio of 1 to 4,000 was a really bad ratio. I knew that wasn't going to work. So we actually had no choice but to test this idea of building distributed leadership on Olivia's campaign we worked for months to build it and by the fall it was fully up and running and that's when our volunteer base more than doubled to 9,000. So I'm not gonna go through exactly what we did because that would be a whole nother talk but in the end we had two field directors managing 11 organizers who managed 150 full-time and part-time fellows, which I'll talk about in a bit, who helped manage the work of over 300 leaders, like volunteers who had emerged as team leaders, as leaders in their neighborhoods, who then helped to build teams and work with and manage the thousands of volunteers underneath them. That pyramid of distributed leadership was the only way that we could effectively move everybody. That meant that we knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors and some more than once. We had incredible people hosting canvases out of their homes across the city. We trusted them to do that. And we were able to help build a sense of community among local teams. Olivia didn't ultimately win the mayoralty, unfortunately, I think we all know that. But we did effectively build power through that campaign. But how do you build distributed leadership? There are often already trained people when you get involved on a campaign, there's often already trained people that, yes, you could probably throw into leadership positions right away and they do a good job, but that's never enough. And that's not actually contributing to growth or building or helping people learn. Instead, you need to make it a part of a campaign, part of a plan. It's harder sometimes when we're focused on the short-term outcome, but you need to make it a part of your plan to invest in developing people, to invest in building power and invest in training. And that's my third idea here for you today. Invest in building power, that means training people. And then it also means giving them the opportunity to apply their skills and to lead on Olivia's campaign. We spent April and May hosting large training events across the city. And then in June, we held a full day training conference that 1000 people attended a big investment for a mayoral campaign and i don't think it was something that had been done before in toronto we were able to train over 2500 of our volunteers through the different training events and the conference that we held we also created an intense fellows program where if somebody committed 20 hours a week of their time to volunteering with olivia 10 of those hours were spent in trainings that we built for them we actually built a 12-week curriculum that we tried to take people through. And they were applying their skills and having the opportunity to build and turn into leaders over the course of the training program. So all of the canvases that we were running in May, in April, May, and June were canvases. We were knocking on doors and talking to people about Olivia. But the way we saw it from the field perspective was we were giving people an opportunity to try. Right? The conversations you're having in April and May and June don't mean as much as the conversations you have in September when you get closer to the election day because people might change their minds. But we wanted to have that chance to talk with people so that our volunteers could see what it was like to lead a canvas and make mistakes and then go and apply those skills in September when when it was the crunch time. So this allowed people to move into leadership positions and to help us work with even more people. At Progress Toronto, we're also deeply invested in building power. I mentioned it as one of our four streams of work. All of our canvases, At all of our canvases and all of our phone banks, we take extra time to train people and to debrief with them after. We also run a seasonal training series. Has anybody here heard of our training series? A few people? It's on the front of our website at progresstoronto.ca, so you can also check it out. So winter, spring, summer, and fall, we offer... Anywhere from five to 10 training sessions that you can just come out to. You don't have to commit to all of them. People can just show up. They're offered for free. We do always ask people if they can donate to help us cover our costs. And you learn anything from how to knock on doors, how to organize your own door canvas, to how to city hall work. We have a city hall one on one. How do you meet with a local politician? How do you speak at a government committee? There's lots of different trainings that we offer. We also have big dreams for investing in in our training streams. So we're less than two years old, and because we're not charitable, funding is a bit more of a challenge for us. We we rely on thousands of individual donors, and our average gift is $35, and our average monthly gift is $11. So it gives you a good idea of of what we rely on. Um, And we also have sponsors that give to us when we host events. I say this because We hope to launch our own Fellows Program, hopefully sometime this year or next. And with that Fellows Program, we would like to compensate people for their time so that there's no barrier to being a part of this program, but we'll be training people up over the course of it. As well, we hope to host an annual conference, training conference that we've already named called Organizing to Win. We believe deeply in investing in people's leadership and growth so that we can bring more people in and move more people to action. We see it as the path to winning our campaigns and building a more equitable city. A big part of training people and investing in building their power is giving them the actual opportunity to go and lead. Often, people in charge can't let go of things, right? I've been there, I do that, I still do that. I, I, check, I try to check myself for that. But we need to give people the chance to actually take on these projects and these tasks and lead and maybe even fail. That's how we learn, through failing. If you, if, you want to get, if you want people to build their power, if you want people to build their skills, you have to give them that chance. It's up to you to motivate them, encourage them, and let them know it's okay to make a mistake and help them debrief afterwards and learn from their mistakes. We have to share the power that we hold so that our collective power can grow. So Progress Toronto for us that means letting our volunteers lead and organize door canvases and phone banks, giving them the skills first to do that, of course, so we're not just throwing people in, but letting them do that, letting them take up that space. And a big part of motivating people to take on leadership and give their time is also sharing your strategy with them. That's my fourth idea for you today. You have to share your strategy, your goals and your priorities with people in order to motivate them and to train them. So how many people have volunteered on like an electoral campaign in here and been told why they're knocking on doors, where they're going? A few people, right? But not most. How many people feel like they're a part of the strategy and understand the strategy of the campaign? Just a few. Often on political campaigns, electoral campaigns, or issue-based campaigns, we seem to think that our strategy is some sort of secret, right? That it's like a secret weapon that we have. But the truth is that most of the time, the people that we're up against have more experience than us or have just as much experience as us, and they could kind of guess what our strategy is. There's things that they don't have. They don't have the determination that we have. Right? because we have a sense of injustice, they have a sense of holding on, um, but they probably know our strategy. If you're using people power and democratic power in a strategic way, like if you're helping move thousands of people to action in key polls in an MPP's riding, polls you think that that MPP cares about most, they're probably gonna find out that that's what you're doing, right? They probably know that you're knocking on doors in their riding. That's the point. So it really doesn't matter if you're sharing that strategy with your volunteers beforehand. That MPP is going to find out. They, the MPP, most likely a he, because that's the situation we're in right now, will know it soon enough, but his, but his voters, because his voters are telling him something. More often than not, he has, to, like even, even if the MPP knows that he's only getting these calls because you're knocking on doors in his riding, he still has to listen to those voters. He still has to listen to those constituents if he's concerned about his reelection, right? So telling your volunteers, your organizers, and people involved in your campaign what your strategy is and what your goals are will benefit you more than the risk that you might perceive. It will motivate them tremendously. It's the difference between a volunteer showing up at an office, being thanked, and then sent out to Canvas in the cold to go knock on doors and come back and hand back like a clipboard and you say thank you, of course you would say thank you, and that's it. And a volunteer who comes in is shown a map of how many doors have been knocked on, is shown a clear gap or a hole on that map of what doors remain and and what what we need their help filling, that they're told who that MPP is, and they're told why this will convince the MPP to change their mind, you could even tell them that you have a goal of knocking on 1,500 doors and that MPP's riding in those targeted polls, and we've only knocked on 1,100, and we need to reach 400 more, and that we're hoping that that volunteer will be the person who can deliver that 400. That will motivate that volunteer much more because they're in on your strategy. They'll be motivated to finish that 400 so they can fill in the rest of that map because people want to help, right? Letting more people in on your strategy motivates them. It also motivates them to ask other people to help them, right? I need to help deliver these 400 doors for this campaign. Can you help me do that? And that's how you start to grow your volunteer base. And that volunteer will be able to communicate to other people why that work is important and how it fits into the strategy, how it's part of winning. Of course, they will also gain insights into how to build campaigns and what's strategically important so that hopefully one day they can run their own, right? Because we want to invest in their power. This is important because even if we lose one particular vote, we win if we've invested in people and if we've built more power for the next campaign. Which leads me to my final and fifth idea that I've given you today. Every campaign is an opportunity to build power and ideally to build on what was built before. That's the ideal. Before I was field director for Olivia Chow's Merrill campaign, I worked at Toronto City Hall for Councillor Mike Layden. It was wonderful working with Mike because he understood the importance, and he still understands the importance, of helping organizers and organizations navigate City Hall so that they could run their campaigns and advocate for change. He understood the importance of democratic power and helping people use it. In 2012 and 2013, through my work in Mike's office, I had the chance to work with an incredible group of women who were campaigning to stop a downtown mega casino in Toronto. How many people remember the no casino campaign and the proposal? Not applauding the casino. No. <laughs> we're applauding the, the fact that the casino has been stopped. Yeah. So when it was first proposed, the majority of the then 45 members of city council, now we have 25 members of city council, they were in favor of the casino. Only eight of the city councilors were opposed, eight of 45. And it seemed like every single lobbyist in Toronto and Ontario had been hired to put pressure on all the counselors, on senior staff at the city, on the province to get them to support the casino. But we knew the impacts of addiction. We knew the strain on the local economy, on local businesses that casinos would bring. We knew about the traffic, everything that would come with a, with a downtown casino. We knew that it would be very bad for Toronto and we were determined to stop the casino. The No Casino campaign was up against Paul Godfrey. People remember Paul Godfrey? The Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation, and almost every major casino company you could think of. MGM Grand, Tropicana, Caesars, and others. The Toronto Star described this, David Ryder from the Toronto Star described it as a David versus Goliath battle. They were spending millions of dollars buying up ads. In one week, they'd spent like something like $5 million on ad campaigns. And at that same time, the No Casino campaign had spent a few hundred dollars buying a domain and building a website. We were definitely being outspent, but we believed in democratic power and we built a campaign around that. We built a campaign that had hundreds of volunteers that focused in on the wards where we knew we could move and had to move city councillors in order to get them to oppose the casino. So for months, for an entire year through the winter, we knocked on doors, we called people, we built partnerships with residents associations and other groups across the city, and we helped make it easy for people to call and email and meet with their local councillors to tell them to stop the casino. And after about a year of work, the councillors had been flipped. We even forced the meeting on the casino. The mayor didn't want to hold the meeting, so Mike went around with a petition. Councillors can sign petitions to call their own meetings. He got a majority of counselors to call this meeting, and they voted 40 to 4 to oppose the casino. It was great. In fact, Ford had moved his own motion to stop the casino. That's how far we took it. But out of spite, he then voted against the motion that was 40 to 4 that, that Mike moved. When the campaign was over, though, It was everything we had built seemed to slip away, right? All the people we trained, all the infrastructure we built, it wasn't available and used. And just around the corner was the mayoral campaign. So the municipal election was right around the corner and I was going into Olivia's campaign and it really felt like in many ways we were starting from scratch. But I had just spent two years working with people to build all of this infrastructure before. And I told you everything we built on Olivia's campaign, the 2,500 volunteers we trained, the leadership we built within it, but it was the same problem at the end of Olivia's campaign. When it ended, it all seemed to slip away. We invested heavily in people's leadership. We built teams, friendships, and a sense of community. And some of that, I believe, lived on organically. And we don't know all of the great change that that meant for the city, much of it also slipped away. And that's a really big reason why I founded Progress Toronto. Um, It became clear to me that we needed a broad-based organization focused on the city that would sustainably build power inside and outside of elections. So that every time we work on an issue, which relates to this fifth idea, every time we run a campaign, the power we built the people we invested in, they could continue their work with us if they wanted to for the next change that needed to be advocated for. It's all too easy for us to be caught up in the moment and the campaign and the vote that we see coming ahead of us and not think about the long term, not think about people's growth. We're just focused on winning on that one issue, but we all need to reframe and see each campaign as an opportunity to build, learn and grow. To bring more people in and to build that power. It's our hope at Progress Toronto that we will be able to contribute to sustained and continual growth in people power through our work and with that we can finally change who holds power in the city and the decisions that they're making and we believe that this is the way to building a more just city.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to Five Good Ideas with Michael Hay. We linked her Five Good Ideas, her resources, and a full transcript of today's session in our show notes. You can find all of our Five Good Ideas sessions from past seasons on the Maitri website. That's Maitri.com forward slash five dash good dash ideas. And of course, you can subscribe to the podcast to continue to listen to our best sessions. See you next time.